0: You invest, you curate, and then you mend. (laughs) And I think with those strategies in play, we could do so much to the bigger conversation around how much we're consuming, which is totally unsustainable. There's no way we can continue what we're doing. It's got to shift.
1: This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gauthier. The biggest change between this version and previous seasons of this podcast is that there are so many new ways to get involved with the regenerative skills community and fast track your learning. If you're ready to take the next step, I've created a wealth of resources at different subscription levels to fit both your time and financial budget. There are resource packets that accompany each episode, full unedited interviews, free book giveaways, invitations to live panel discussions with experts, and bi-monthly skill building calls to explore solutions, connect with support groups, and share your journey. For those of you who want more personalized guidance, I even have a couple of openings for one-on-one consulting. This weekly podcast is just the beginning. Find the subscription that's right for you through our Patreon link on the website at regenerativeskills.com. If you don't know her from her books, Fibershed and Harvesting Color, you'll likely remember Rebecca Burgess from the panel discussion two weeks ago that I hosted with the team at Climate Farmers, in which she and Arroa Alvarez Fernandez spoke about the potential of regenerative fashion and textiles to transform the current clothing industry. After that discussion I felt compelled to speak to her again to explore some of the options that are available to everyone to rediscover the value in our wardrobes and care for our clothing as investments. Now this is no minor change. The fashion industry around the world is now second only to the oil industry as the largest polluter on earth. This affects everyone and is tied to many aspects of our lives, from growing fibers, to processing fabrics and dyeing them to the millions of people who work in the industry, from farming all the way to retail. It's responsible for 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions due to its long supply chains and energy-intensive production, but even more severe is the industry's impact on our water supplies. For example, 85% of the daily needs in water of the entire population of India could be covered by the water used just to grow cotton in the country and yet it's estimated that 100 million people there do not have secure access to drinking water. Now, in most of the countries in which garments are produced, untreated toxic wastewaters from textile factories are dumped directly into the rivers. The contamination eventually reaches the sea and then spreads around the globe. But while the destruction of the clothing industry is staggering, there are a lot of simple things that all of us can change in our consumption and care habits to do our part to fix this. Since this is certainly not my own area of expertise, I asked Rebecca what her own hierarchy of clothing purchases are and how she decides what garments to invest in.
0: First of all, it's definitely based on need um, and not just a replication of something I already have. Um, So there's that. And then, you know, I, I do have parameters in which I, you know, I can't continuously afford. Um, the time or the money to buy something that's completely handmade all the time. (laughs) Like that's, that's not like the life that I have. So I do have clothes that are handmade. Um, There's a few keystone species in the wardrobe that are, that are really beautiful. They're, they're made with from yarn from ranches who I love dearly. Um, They're generally a, a little more Unique garments that I don't wear all the time. Um, I haven't really figured out how to make the local into like the most everyday item, except for the sweater. Like it works for sweaters, but anything you need to wear on the lower half of your body um, that drives me out into the the world writ large of you know where to find something I consider ethical. Or so I'm looking for some kind of triangulation between. Um, We're really supporting the US tax base um, because I live here and I wanna see a better social safety net. And I don't think we can do that under our current economic conditions where we're kind of printing money, um, working off economic fumes. I I really wanna see a real economy. And so I always look for, was this made in the US? Because I live here, I have a responsibility to this tax base and to the, the democratic process I'm trying to shape and helping support U.S. manufacturing is huge. If I can find it, it's not easy. I also look for just 100% natural fiber. So whatever. And that that I look for pretty religiously. Like, did you put spandex in it? (laughs) Polyester? Uh, If you did, I'm going to try to look for something else.
1: Why is it that natural fibers are so important to healthy and positive clothing choices? I thought that all these higher performance synthetic fabrics promised to last longer and be more durable, especially for outdoor wear.
0: It's amazing to me that, especially living in a county where a lot of people are outside and they're hiking around, um, how much we're wearing fossilized carbon refined through very egregious refinement processes that create affluent. In our water that's toxic, air emissions that are toxic, soil contamination. And then we use those refined fossilized carbon sources and we turn them into nurdles and then we turn them into filaments. And then we wear, you know, Patagonia fleece jackets. And yeah, they say they're recycled plastic bottles, but once it's a fleece, it can't go anywhere else. It's a dead end, it's cul de sac. <laughs> um, so we're out there enjoying nature while literally the dust from those clothes, the lint is a contaminant. Like you can't, it's not just your washing machine. It's not just your dryer. (laughs) You're literally like a a plastic dust storm walking outside with your plastic clothes and it gets in your food. It gets in your body. So we're drinking our yoga pants and all these things that people want stretch. Um, They don't know, they don't know what all this is doing. They know what's happening in the soil you know, with these plastic lint items, getting into microbes and changing the metabolic pathways of the soil microbiology and it's stunting plant life. It's a problem. And that, these, are, these are the ways we're starting to understand it's a problem. So we don't know how ubiquitous it is, I guess, at this point, but I, I'm worried about those things <laughs> more so than my own body. I mean, I'm I'm coming and going, like, I'm on this planet for a little bit of time, but my job is to leave it cleaner than I left during my sojourn here, and wearing plastic is not part of that recipe.
1: Okay, yeah, that makes very clear sense. But so now that we've talked about buying clothes on a needs-based primarily, and working to exclude plastic and fossil fuel-based fibers from the wardrobe, that brings me to think about how we can care for the items that we already own and mend them as they become worn down.
0: Yes, it's it's um, the caring part is uh, it I, well I actually see it happening. You know, like the the mending and the repair work has become visible. They couldn't call it visible mending, <laughs> where the like, when I first started this, and you know, trying to understand how I could be helpful in this whole textile system, visible mending was very you know, two thousand five and seven. That was those were the years I was exploring what I should do. Um, it wasn't really that prevalent. And now there's Instagram accounts with many tens of thousands of followers um, looking at how are you taking care? How are you mending your sweater? How are you mending the crotch of your pants? Um, you know What techniques are you, are you using? Um, people writing little zines on how to do it. People having little get togethers on how to do it. And to me, that's critical because if, you know, polyester and acrylic and nylon, those fibers have artificially made the price of fast fashion or most textiles cheaper, right? They um, we externalize the climate change costs and the microfiber fragmentation costs and we externalize the air, water, soil emissions. So the plas- the polyacrylic cotton blend from some fast fashion brand that gives you a 10 to $12 t-shirt Um, It's that cheap because it's not all cotton. (laughs) Cotton by nature, even with all the exploitation of the farm and the farm worker and the chemical industry, (laughs) it's still more expensive than poly, um, than the the plastics. So they need the plastics to keep the prices down. So my thing is, if we're going to spend more on clothes because we're committing to clothing that's going to biodegrade then we have to know that we're gonna spend more or we're gonna make payments, right? There's also these payment plans I've seen. Um, we're gonna keep our clothes in play. And the way we're gonna do that, we're gonna spend a little more and then care about them. And I think that mending and investing go well together. You invest in the right piece, you become more of, I've, this one company, for Objects, I think it's called, does a really neat, neat thing where they turn the word consumer into collector. Think of your clothing as a collection, like a very refined collection of garments that you are curating like a collector would. And you know what your movement patterns are, your job requirements, your life, what it expects of you. And you design a wardrobe and you think through each piece as it applies to the use patterns you know you need to work through. I'm a runner, I, I'm a UPS driver, will they get a uniform, I guess. Um, <laughs> but whatever it is that I'm doing, I'm sitting, I'm driving, I'm on the computer, I'm um, working at my cashier at a grocery store, whatever you're, are you standing, sitting, all that comes into play. And then you kind of curate from there. And if you curate with used garments, that's been harder for me because I don't, our thrift stores have all been closed for a long time with COVID. But historically, um, thrifting is, is, is a really another way to curate your wardrobe. And then again, you invest, you curate, and then you mend. <laughs> and I think with those strategies in play, we could do so much to the bigger conversation around how much we're consuming, which is totally unsustainable. There's no way we can continue what we're doing. It's gotta, it's gotta shift.
1: Absolutely. And I really want to focus for a second on that portion that you mentioned on mending, because it was a very common skill set to be able to mend textiles in our culture very, very recently. My partner still knows how to work a sewing machine, but partly because she studied fashion design in, in university. But I remember taking basic sewing skills at, um, at middle school, at uh, home economics. And I always wondered, like, there's, there's a lot you can do with this, but then the classes just stopped and I didn't, I was never really inspired to pursue it, partly because of the way that our culture looks at these types of professions for, for male roles as well.
0: Mm, yes, I don't, I think that the, it, this odd, it's like one of the oddities of how the women's liberation movement manifested probably in the West was that somehow we felt like the historic way in which home economics was taught. Which was mainly to uh, support the female, I guess, to enter into a domestic home life in an effective way. <laughs> but when we decided that that wasn't where women were going to hang out all the time, which I think is great, obviously, <laughs> I'm a big fan of the freedom to choose your your career path. Um, but however, I think we threw the baby out with the bathwater when it came to home economics because it was it's it's, a, it's it should be a genderless. Um, or whatever you know like there should be no definition about who that's good for that's good for everybody um, I don't know how to darn your socks which means you know socks are pretty much the one thing on the human body that it's really hard to imagine now not putting plastic in the sock because think of it, it has to stretch around this appendage on our body that gets so much pressure it gets all of our physical body weight Um, and the force of gravity upon this little tiny foot, and it just gets incredible wear and tear. So mending that probably was part of home economics at one point. You put a little wooden darning tool in there, and you stretch the hole over a surface. You put yarn in a darning needle, and you start like weaving, basically. You do the over-under patterns vertically and horizontally on that hole, and then off it comes from its darning tool, and then back on your foot. (laughs) <laughs> but we use so much plastic in the socks that we don't darn. And then when the socks finally do wear out, which is normally all the natural fibers like threadbare, and you just see these little plastic filaments left on the hole, um, we're ready for the next pair. And <laughs> those get thrown away. And, you know, The problem with all that plastic too though, is it goes into the landfill because socks people do, I think probably end up throwing them away. I don't know a lot of people who are composting their socks because they can't. I think it's in our landfill and it releases antimony trioxide when it's in under heat conditions, that plastic um, does create a huge problem in landfill because it's not supposed to, they use antimony trioxide to make those filaments and they're generally not released. That chemical is not released until the sock or whatever it is that's plastic ends up in a, a warm or heated environment. So anaerobic landfill can create a pretty warm environment. And so antimony trioxide becomes one of these major leaching chemicals in our landfills. And it's very detrimental to the human, uh, I'm to say nervous system. I have a whole list of things it's bad for, but that's That's something that also with mending, it's like, just keep this stuff out of landfill (laughs) if we can. Um, Socks, we got a long way to go on, I I (laughs) realize.
1: Yeah, undoubtedly. Socks might be a bit of a challenge moving forward. But so let's explore some of the options available for keeping garments in good condition and good use for as long as possible by also keeping them circulating within our communities. Now, you said back in the panel discussion that clothing swaps are one of your favorite ways to do this. Can you give me a better idea of what a clothing swap is?
0: Nice. Um, clothing swaps are often uh, designed around a potluck. So if you you have clothing in your wardrobe that maybe you're just not wearing because um, it's lost some novelty or it's not the right Shape for how your body has gotten bigger or smaller or whatever. Um, <clears throat> you kind of can bundle those still very wearable items, and um, and you you know you can either be the host or you can go to something that's being hosted. But generally, it's someone's living room, and you bring a dish of food, and you bring your still very wearable, interesting textile items in a bag, mm-hmm. and you generally have a meal and some drinks together and socialize. And then in the clothing swaps I've been at, we just form a circle and we put all the clothes in between us and we lay them out on on the rug or hardwood floor, whatever, and just show what we have. And then organically, there's no more process really that I would say there's no protocol left. You just kind of walk around and pick up things that you like. (laughs) And um, And, you know, you, you, tend to it brings out like all of the I would say the de- desire to be polite you don't want to grab more than you're bringing you want to bring nice things so if you trade you're it's not a one-to-one trade necessarily um between the person that you're absorbing a new item from they may not want what you have but they may want what someone else has <laughs> so um it's it's food it's sharing it's um you know a delicate dance of bringing the right thing and making sure you're not taking too much. Um, I think traditional gifting circles have really nice formality. Um, These are a little looser (laughs) in nature. Um, But yeah, I think anyone can have a clothing swap. Hopefully we can institute these more and more as, um, as the world starts to socialize again.
1: Yes, I'm looking forward to that, too. That would be a good reason to get back together again. Yeah, it
0: would. I
1: I can imagine that people have either grown out of or shrunk out of a lot of their clothes in this pandemic.
0: So true. I think, yeah, people's bodies have really changed size. Um, Yeah, you're right. There should be a flood of post-COVID clothing swaps.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. And so I've been to both the ones that you mentioned, like in the small scale, like in someone's uh, living room. I've also been to ones at churches back when I was younger. And here in Spain, they've actually, I mean, they haven't done it in a while, of course, because of COVID, but they used to do, I think it was like once or twice a year, they would do clothing swaps within the entire town and set it up like an outdoor market where people would have their uh, tables and such. And those were big events.
0: That's amazing. That sounds inspiring to do it at the community level.
1: Wow. Yeah, I've seen some big ones and some that were organized by schools. So, all the parents would get together and swap kids' clothes, which God knows they are always growing out of those things.
0: Yeah, that's a high need. <laughs> a lot of turnover in kids' clothes. For sure. Oh my goodness, I love that vision. I have not seen a community scale version, but um, churches, schools, parking lots, they, yeah, those are great locations. Um, if you have a community center, it seems like in your town. That'd be a really fun thing to organize at a facility like that
1: love it <laughs> one thing that i've noticed since i've moved here to spain and kind of have been adopted into a new family is uh i'm the oldest of five kids in my family which means i got all the new stuff and all of my younger siblings got all the hand-me-downs so i'm not used to getting uh old stuff except for like when i go to thrift stores or buy things used which i normally do but since i moved here Uh, my parents' folks had an entire wardrobe of a lot of clothing that uh, my my partner's grandfather used to wear, which by some miracle fits me quite well. And so now I wear a lot of grandfather clothes (laughs) from an old Andalusian man who I never got to meet, but it, Uh, I've definitely had moments with my partner where she has looked at something that I've put on or like came upstairs wearing and has broken into tears because of all of the memories that come back to her from her grandfather. And she likes seeing me kind of embrace this uh, identity of a person that I didn't met, but was extremely close to her. And that's just one of the things that kind of made me think about all of these stories that are continued from memories that come through clothing have you had similar experiences mm,
0: yes and I love that um I love that story so much and just out of curiosity he must have had a lot of nice natural fiber clothes I'm imagining
1: Natural. yeah definitely more than like I would find in a store <laughs> and he worked as like a car mechanic and he he loved to work in their garden so you get a lot of like sweaters that have been Uh, well worn in the elbows and you know like you said those patterns of wear and the evidence of use and their intention when they were when they were in use is something that I really like to notice like some of them have uh, paint stains because you would do a lot of uh, maintenance on the house and things like that and I wear that kind of stuff proudly like it's a badge
0: nice it is I mean it's it's someone actually doing their own work in their own environment and it's connected yeah to the shelter and the community and wow it's yeah definitely woven and stitched in a bunch of experiences into that one paint stain that's very cool it's true our clothes I mean I don't think you've ever been through someone's closet who's deceased I think that becomes a really prominent moment where you recognize how laden the textile is with memory um, because you can think through when you saw that person alive wearing that shirt I mean that's when it's really been extremely poignant to me it's like posthumously I'm like whoa these clothes are such an emblem more of an emblem than any other object of this person's lived experience you know how they wore the clothes the elbows the knees um my dad's wardrobe after he passed was such an incredible way of continuing his life um the stories that were generated during his wear cycle, and then mine, because I wore a lot of his clothes. They were wonderful. They were very hand embroidered, all very mended. Um, a lot of corduroy <laughs> from the '70s and '60s. Yeah. So I think um, I think that it's um, a way to yeah express our lives in a way. If we have a clothing swap, we can say, well, I wore that when. I did this and now you get to experience it. But that also, that's a really good point. That is part of how we can share the
1: clothes. We can
0: share the item and the stories that go with it. Yeah, it's a nice way to share ourselves and our lives with others.
1: Okay, but so there's one more key part to this idea of clothing swaps. And I wouldn't know where to start in organizing one. Can you tell me about how to get one of these things started?
0: (laughs) well i've organized a few i've also just been um a, you know an audience or a participant in someone else's hosted clothing swap and what i observed was an invitation to um or what i participated in as a hostess um maybe an invitation to 5 to 10 people we've done a, a pretty you know whoever can fit in your living room i guess it depends on how big if if you're doing it in the evening and it's cool and um, yeah, you want to fit in, indoors. Um, you kind of host depending on the size of the space and that you have available. And then you would set a time where you have enough time to eat together and socialize together as a first things first. Um, you definitely want to have a place in the house where people can go and try things on. So knowing that if you're inviting people over, it might be the use of your living room and um, the bathroom or another bedroom because trying things on is a big fun part of it. People try on each other's clothes and come out and show people. And it, generally it's been a group of um, women. I have, <laughs> they have been involved primarily in uh, lady focused clothing swaps. And it's just like having The chit-chat level is hilarious. You can barely follow one conversation for more than maybe 30 seconds before something else starts up. And then, um, then you're off to the next thing. And then (laughs) someone walks out with someone's old sweater and it looks amazing on them. And everyone compliments that person profusely about how good they look. And then they take that sweater home. (laughs) But I think what you're doing in a way is you're building each other up in a thoughtful and authentic way. You're supporting each other in acquiring a new piece, but you're also saying, gosh, that looks good on you. And that's totally your color and making sure people know how appreciated they are and how an item of clothing is a compliment to whatever their hair color, their skin tone. It's lovely. We don't do that for each other very often. So that's part of the manners that just kind of, I think at least in a group of women kind of surface naturally, but I can I'm being explicit about them in this conversation. <laughs> um, and the other thing I'd say is just, yeah, after you eat and have, um, you know, a glass of wine or some other drink together, you're, you're wanting to, you know, carry out the evening that way. So um, you don't really put a time frame on it. I've noticed, unless you, you need everyone to leave by your bedtime, but you generally just let people linger and do this uh, exchange for as many hours as you're Comfortable with, and it can be a very leisurely, sweet exchange. And I tended to bring, you know, not an overwhelming amount of clothes. And I think maybe bringing the, the clothes that you know someone could appreciate and making sure maybe you've mended them and washed them beforehand. Um, taking some care to bring something nice, like you're, it's an offering. And so you want to think of it like an offering.
1: There's so many ways to play with this concept of. Friend and neighborhood swaps and exchanges too. I love this idea of creating offerings and keeping resources within a community as long as possible. Not only does it mean that you all have to buy less things, but it also means that more of your money stays in the community instead of supporting the fast fashion industry. I would love to hear about any of your own experiences. Do you have any good stories or ideas of swaps and exchanges from your own neighborhood, or a tradition of mending and fixing regular items in your part of the world? The conversation always continues on the Regenerative Skills Discord server, which you can sign up for for free through the links through the website. A special thank you to Rebecca Burgess for once again sharing her knowledge and experience. You can check out our organizations at Fibershed.org and CarbonCycle.org. You can also find her books at Goodreads.com through the link on the website in the show notes for this episode. Thanks to Nico staff for this week's original music. If you'd like to have your own original music featured on the show or just want to get in touch, you can email me directly at info at Until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.